The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, our sermon will be looking at verses 4 through 8, but I'd like to begin reading back at verse 1 of chapter 2. What you're about to hear really is God's word given to you, that you might hear it, know him, and love him as a result. Please listen as it's read in your hearing. The Apostle Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Well, the grass will wither and the flower does fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, as you will recall, we looked last week at uh, how we can, not just can, but should be praying for one another as we live life as Christians together uh, in a world that's fallen and difficult and full of sorrow and trial and temptation. And we, we mentioned last time that there are times, are there not, where just life, especially in someone else's life, strikes us as so difficult, so heavy, so grievous, so gut-wrenching that there's times where we just go like, Lord, I don't know what I can do. We looked at how we can we can take the names of our brothers and sisters in their deepest needs and rush right into the presence of the throne of grace and petition God for help for those who desperately need it. And such petitions made in faith for those who are hurting and struggling, our Father will not hear them and turn a deaf ear to them, But those petitions fall on a father's ear and he delights to use the prayers of his people to accomplish great things in the life of a church body. And that we should be be quick to rush into the closet of prayer and take our loved ones upon our lips and on our hearts and lay them at the throne of grace because that is what God has beckoned us to do. That was, was last week in looking at serving one another. When we consider the text that's in front of us this week, the Apostle Paul uh, kind of not just moves on, but, but flows out of that idea of praying for one another and surfacing to the top of the text might well be the reason for which he writes the epistle in the first place. Every letter that's in the New Testament was written in some kind of a, a, a context, some kind of a, a need arose or a thankfulness was warranted or a, an error to be corrected. And there, there's always a reason for which Paul or some of the other New Testament authors would write. Well, in our text, I believe we find the beginnings of Paul addressing that issue that was happening in the Colossian church 
And as we said, I guess it was months ago in our uh, introduction to Colossians, that we share the same trouble that the Colossians had. The Colossian church, from what we can tell from the book, was wrestling uh, with a subtle temptation that in some ways was sneaky, and some, I guess in some other ways was just quite overt, but the, the temptation went something like this. Jesus Christ just simply, in your case, isn't enough. You might say, well, who would believe such a thing? Who would, if, if ever someone came to me and said, Jesus Christ is never enough, I would be like, get that out of here. Come on. But if you roll that temptation around just a little bit, you'll realize it's perhaps the most common temptation. That in seasons of bliss and ease, I don't need him. In seasons of trial and pain and agony and darkness, he doesn't feel like enough. In the ins and the outs of life, we would say he's excellent, he's good, he's even great, but life might go a little bit easier, a little bit better, a little more smoothly if only I add, and you fill in the blank, to him. Well, brothers and sisters, far from a ridiculous uh, temptation, this one is one that we are very familiar with. Whether we acknowledge it and recognize it or not, is not each and every sin, couldn't you like boil it all down and say, at the heart of it is a suspicion that he might not be enough. And so praying as Paul did for their strengthening and their hearts being knit and God helping them, he gets to the heart of the matter. Jesus Christ really is enough and that truth then needs to be guarded in our own personal individual hearts as well as in our hearts as a kind of a collective church body. I need to be telling my own wretched, wayward, prone to wander heart, heart, you wretch, He's enough. Would you get your mind wrapped around that? And then we need to say to one another, in kinder words, brother, sister, try to avoid the, you wretch. Avoid that part. Brother and sister, I know the temptation. But believe me when I say he's enough. You've already engaged in this this morning. You've already sang in the presence of one another and depending on the song to one another that Christ is our hope in life and death and Christ is the one who will raise us from the dead and and there's this sense where we are singing yes to God and yet in another sense our, our worship not just goes vertically but the truth of it goes horizontally need to hear that I'm not the only person in the room who believes it because there are times where you come in and it's, it's wavering, it's trembling, it's, it's fragile. And to hear a room full of full-hearted Christians, Christ, my hope, in life and death. You've already done the heartbeat of this passage this morning in reminding one another of the sufficiency of the Savior. Now, sadly, this is not one of those things in life where you're like, I did it once, I got it over with, I don't got to do it again. That's the way I view Disneyland. I did it once, and don't come up to me and argue about this afterwards. I don't, it falls on deaf ears. I did it once, I don't got to do it again. My kids are all really disappointed because I didn't take them with me. But (laughs) I was a kid. That's why I didn't go to Disneyland on my own. That'd be ridiculous. So I did it once. I don't have to do it again. Encouraging one another the sufficiency of Christ, at least in my own heart, brothers and sisters, is that not a moment by moment kind of thing too? Is that not, it's not like I tell myself in the morning, trust him. And then I'm good the rest of the day. Like, no, moments after that, I'm going to be confronted with this 
this subtle deception. And so we want to consider the, the, the need to guard uh, the, the all-sufficiency of Christ, not the reality of it, but the, but the belief and trust of it in our own hearts. We want to do that under three headings. And if I'm honest with myself, I probably won't get to the third one today unless we just blow by uh, 12 o'clock, which we've never done before. We want to consider first the exhortation to not be led astray. Do not be led astray. Do not be pushed, as it were, off this point of the sufficiency of the Savior. You will be pushed upon. You will be tried to be lured away from the world. The flesh and the devil will endeavor to get you and I to question, doubt, and ultimately reject the sufficiency of Christ. And the Christian must say to his or herself, soul, do not be led off this ground. I, I, it's no secret at all that I am a, a total nerd when it comes to all things like U.S. military, especially World War II. But uh, there was the, there's this, this moment in General Hackworth's uh, biography when he was fighting in the Korean War. And he said that there were, there were times where the U.S. troops were just so overwhelmed that it, it couldn't be really measured. And he said there was all this retreating and retreating by the U.S. forces. And every once in a while, this, the word would come down the line, hold at all costs. And Hackworth says there, there was this resolve that settled into the bones of every soldier. We will not retreat from here. Wasn't an option. Brothers and sisters, if you would just let your eyes gaze upon the truthfulness of verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, you have in essence the Apostle Paul saying to each and every one of us, hold this ground at all cost. Do not be driven from it. Do not retreat from it. And don't, as our first element says here, be lured away from it. Oh, we can at times, we'll look at this at point three probably next week, unless things go miraculously this morning. Uh, we can be times where, where the world, the flesh, and the devil t- uh, intend to bludgeon us off of it. But there's the more subtle one of being lured off of it. Not by being driven by the vinegar of threats, being drawn by the sweetness of honey for something else. Do not be lured away from this belief in your bones that Jesus Christ and all that's in him is all that I need. Don't be drawn away from this. So look at verse four with me. The apostle Paul says, I say this, and he'll get on to the in order of that. So uh, Paul is speaking in verse four with, with tremendous purpose and reason. As I've said previously, I actually think he's introducing what is that driving pastoral concern that takes up much of the rest of the letter. So in saying, I say this in order that he's floating to the surface of our minds that this is the thing that we cannot afford to miss when he's writing this letter. This is the reason why he took up quill and ink to write to this lovely church, that they would, uh, well, we'll get to the content of it, but this is the reason of it. Now he says, I say this. Well, does the this refer to what is preceded our text or what follows out of? And I'm gonna say, uh, just like I do at the dessert buffet, I I want both. I'll, I'll take them both. I think he's grabbing what he has said up until this point and then quite uh, logically and, and flowing from it saying, and then what follows after that is also reason. So it's not like Paul says, hey, I've been shooting the breeze with you uh, up until this point. doesn't really matter. Now, here's the real thing I want to talk to you about. You can tell when someone's talking to you and you don't know why they're talking about the thing they're talking about. And then they say, oh, uh, yeah, uh, so anyways... 
this real thing I wanted to talk to you about, you should have just started with that. Paul has begun, all of the letter has been building up to this point, not wasted. The whole, the pushing the church with this high Christology in chapter one, that was not wasted. He's shown you the glory of Christ over the first creation and then over the, the second creation, the church, and how they ultimately uh, are one in the end time and, and in the, the eternal state and the supremacy of Christ. He's been getting us ready for this. This exalted Christ is one that you should, verse 6, walk in. But before we get to that, do not be Deluded, the text says. Do not be deceived, the sense is. Do not be drawn or lured away. I'm no fisherman, that would be Charlie. But that idea of luring, I would assume, would have something to do with the fish wants it for some unknown reason. And so it bites at it. Paul says, don't bite at anything that says it can or should be added to Christ. Doesn't matter how flashy it looks. It doesn't matter how much you might think that you want it. Do not be lured away. And then he says the thing that so often will be the thing that lures us away. He says in verse 4, don't be deluded with, the ESV says, a plausible arguments. Now, you know my love for the ESV. I don't think I've been quiet about that. Plausible is good, not great. The idea behind this phrase is persuasive speech. It's not like plausible has the idea of like, yeah, oh man, that might be true. I'm really starting to wonder things. Like, no, the idea is that of, of smooth talking. Something that sounds good to the ear. Something that sounds like a good idea or a good alternative or something that you should want and run after. And so Paul is saying, listen, Christian, you're going to, if you're going to live in this life, you're going to hear smooth words that will seek to lure you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's smooth talking people in the world that will seek to draw you away from this truth that Christ is all sufficient. Do not listen to such a voice in your life. Now, the the way that Paul is describing the smooth words that that, uh, kind of uh, personify Uh, this errant doctrine should remind us, and I I wouldn't be surprised if Paul indeed was uh, referring back to ways in which uh, folly is personified in the book of Proverbs. If you read the book of Proverbs, it's really a tale of two, I'm sorry, ladies, but of two ladies. The first is Lady Wisdom. Maybe the the ladies here this morning are like, see, wisdom is female in the Bible. All right, that's that's only half the argument. So, wisdom is seen as this, this woman that's calling in the street, come, listen, come, have life, come, put your faith in God. There's a second lady in the book of Proverbs. Lady's an upgrade, I shouldn't call her that. We'll call her Mistress Folly. And some of her activity looks and sounds like wisdom. She too calls in the street, just like wisdom. She too says, come, follow me. Happiness, satisfaction will be had at my house. And yet the way to her door leads to death. Listen as the author of Proverbs says in verse Three of chapter 5, of the forbidden woman, of mistress folly, her lips, or excuse me, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. That's folly calling. That's folly luring. 
That's foolishness playing the temptress, saying, come away from the conviction that Christ is enough. Paul says, do not listen to such such temptations. And you might say, well, what would make us, what, what, what would tempt a person to listen to Madame Folly when, when we have the truth of the gospel laid plain before us? And I, that's a great question to ask. What would cause us or lead us or lend us to be more susceptible to deluding speech in the world? I jotted down a few ideas. The first one Whether we like to admit it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, we like to be seen as wise in the eyes of the world. You might say, not me. Yeah, probably, even you. I know that lurking in the dark places of my heart is the desire to be seen as wise. I don't like being seen as a a fool. I don't like the world thinking I'm like some buck-toothed hillbilly that believes in some crazy fairy tales. Would rather be seen as a buck-toothed hillbilly who believes some true stuff, but that's a different matter altogether. Boredom can also lend towards listening to deluding speech. The church in America, if we could be honest, is a bored church. Not a militant church, not a moving, driving, tired church. Boredom in the Christian life can lend the ear of the Christian to deluding speech. Have you ever watched a movie and you're supposed to be like, it's not even a good movie, why are you watching? I'm like, bored. You watch anything, listen to anything when you're bored. You listen to deluding speech of the enemy, guess what? When you're bored. Now if your dog tired from spending and being spent, Not going to listen to to deluding speech as much. But when you're bored, well, that's often when the heart can be lured away. The opposite sometimes is also true. Weariness due to trials and suffering and disappointment and difficulty. can if If you can stay in that kind of a season for a long time, guess what the enemy loves to do? loves to come in with deluding speech, saying, you know what, this has gone on for a long time. Apparently what you're doing isn't working. Apparently this whole Jesus-sufficient thing, not panning out. You might want to try, and then he'll add something. You might say, yeah, it has been a long time. You're right, I'm not seeing the progress that I thought I would. You're right, this has been like the most discouraging long season of my life. Maybe I should. And he uses that, that, the, the length of the trial to begin to play. I've heard a, an analogy. I have no idea whether it's true, so obviously I'll use it as an illustration. But I've heard that when a storm is coming, fish will tend to bite at anything. Well, similarly, I think the, the same could be true of a Christian. In a storm, in the difficulty of life, we're tempted to bite at anything. Fourthly, what would make us more susceptible? I might say isolating oneself from the community of faith. Pulling away from other believers, other brothers, other sisters in my life, and, and buying an initial easier-to-swallow lie of, I've got this on my own. And then in the quiet of that isolation, the deluding speech, smoother than oil and sweeter than honey, comes into the soul and whispers like the serpent did to Eve in the garden, has God indeed said Christ is enough for you? Really? Quite a backwards doctrine, that. And whisper it with the same slithering sense that he did with Eve so long ago. Brothers and sisters, do you know of these tactics? I've tasted all of them, and so have you. You've had these seasons of 
desiring to be wise or bored or dog-tired and isolation. You, you, I don't think that these are uncommon to any one of us here where the deluding speech of temptation to question the sufficiency of Christ come subtly in. And you, and you might say, well, here's the solution. I'm going to pull away from all such influences. I would say, good luck. Guess who the one who has the worst track record in smooth speaking? This one. My own heart. I wish it was just a channel on the TV that you could turn off. I wish you could block it out, pull back enough where you'd say, you know what? if, If I just block enough of the entryways in which it comes into my life, I'm secure. There's a traitor who lives right here and whispers the deluding, smooth speech, knowing when I'm most tired, knowing when I'm most bored, knowing when my soul would be most willing to hear it. Paul's petition, not just a petition, but his exhortation to you this morning is this. Listen to God's word talk to you, his child today. Do not be deluded or led away by such smooth talking. Don't even hear it. Don't be drawn away from the spot. And then he develops this in verse five and says, for even though I'm absent in the body, this distance, I know it, even though Paul's never met these folks and he's only ever heard of them through Epaphras, you know it had to be killing him to be separated from them. Have you ever had someone who's suffering and they're, they're far away from you and you can't in that moment go get to them? It drives you crazy. You, you would think, well, I would give my, my right hand to be there with them. Paul says, that's, I'm separated from, my, uh, from you physically. I'm in jail. They don't let me get out much. So, but... Even though I'm separated bodily, distance and prison bars, I'm with you in the spirit. He he would say, I I have union with you. Union that time and space and distance can't, just can't separate. We share the same blood. We're saved by the same savior. We're part of the same body. We're in the same family. We're one. Paul says, even though I'm, I can't get to you bodily, I'm with you in the spirit. And then he says something that I think is just super kind of uh, weird. He says, I rejo- yet in my spirit, rejoicing to see. What a weird way of saying it. I want to ask Paul or ask the text that Paul wrote this morning. Paul In what way do you see? You've said before, they haven't even seen your face. And we know they didn't have Zoom back then. So he's not having a Zoom call. He's not FaceTiming them. It's not that he, well, maybe they were friends on Instagram. And that's how he saw them. I doubt it. In what way does Paul see? You can imagine the report coming from Epaphras. Paul, here's the things going on. There's these false teachers, some of them prominent figures in the church. And there's this deluding speech that's prevailing some hearts. And as he gives what we'll see here will be a positive report and tells of Paul of how the church not listening to such deluding speech is indeed standing strong. You can see as it were Paul almost closing his eyes in house arrest or prison or however the situation was saying like, I can see that. I can see through this report. I can see maybe even by the eyes of faith, the church having Good deaf ears to such deluding speech. I knew my brothers and sisters wouldn't give ear to such nonsense. 
You could hear Paul, as it were, such a, such a, a beneficial and benevolent view on how the church is reacting. So he can say, I can, I see and rejoice. Now, what is it the thing? What is the thing that he sees? He obviously sees it through the report, but he uses a very like picturesque and vivid language to describe what Epaphras is saying and the fruits of it as recorded in verse five. So I rejoice to see, and he's in, We'll list two things, and both of these words are actually, they come from a family of, of military words. So instantly, I'm interested, as are hopefully you all. So he says, I've heard two things, and man, when I heard it, my heart leapt. Tears came to my eyes. What is it that he heard? What is it that he saw? I hear of your, now how does the uh, ESV put it? Your good order and firmness of faith. Now, here's what that does not mean. He isn't saying like Epaphras came. And he said, on Sundays, everyone's there, him open. There's none of this. There's no emotion. He's got that Baptist scowl. (laughs) And y'all haven't changed a thing in a decade, he said. Good order. Apparently, that's too close to the truth. Anyway, so, (laughs) maybe you guys are like, and what's wrong with this? He's not saying, none of you have fun. There's no laughing in church. No one has a good time. And everyone has their own hymnal and say verily instead of amen, because that's the higher English way. So, is that what he's talking about? No, I don't think that's what he's talking about. The word that he uses doesn't mean like straight-laced fundamentalism. What he means by it is that of ranks. When an army, especially uh, back then, loses the ability to stay in ranks, they will be overrun. The, the, the structure of the company falls apart. He says, I hear this report from Epaphras. And you know what it looks like by faith to me? An army standing in ranks, engaging the enemy Holding the ground. What a word. I like that word. The second one, I like even better. So he said, these people say, your firmness of faith. Now he's not saying some of your faith is a little squishy, a little flabby, hasn't been in the gym a long time. Exercise it. That's not what he's saying. Although that is very picturesque now that I think about it. Firmness of faith, the, the literal way kind of, of rendering it is a solid front. He's not saying like, you have a six pack. No, that's not what he's saying. The word he uses means like a, a phalanx, a locked shield, to use the Nordic terminology, because you know it's hard, close to my heart, a shield wall. He says, you are in orderly ranks, shield brothers and shield maidens. It's in the Greek, trust me. So just, just don't ask Brian about it. So orderly ranks, shield wall. The idea is that of interlocking faith. You're fighting this, not just, and here's, I think, the important part, not just as a solo individual, as a church as a family, as a military unit, brothers in arms with brothers, sisters in arms with sisters, and you hold the ground against deluding, sweet, smooth-worded lies. And as a church, you've said to one another, not today and not this ground. We won't budge. Christ is enough, you can sell that somewhere else. But if you want to mess with us, we're ready. Bring it on. It's, it's, trust me, the flavors are all in the Greek. Trust me. So he's saying, this is what I've heard. And the, and the sense of it, it's not like they went out and bought weapons. He tells you what the orderliness is and what the uh, firm front is. It's of faith. Notice in whom? Christ himself. 
you say in your orderly ranks and in your shielded front, he is all we need. We won't be moved from it. And if part of the the wall of the church begins to buckle, reinforcements. And if parts of the church begin to get disarrayed, we straighten up ranks because we won't move. Our Savior is enough. We will tell our own soul and heart that. We will tell one another that. When you see a brother or sister struggling, fighting, come alongside them. He's enough. I promise. Hold the ground. Stay on the line. Do not retreat. Do not be lured away. Imagine if in a military context, you could draw one member of the shield wall away and out of the ranks. What would happen to them? They would swiftly be overrun. And that would not just impact them, but it would impact who else? Well, the wall that they just came from. Same thing is true of a church. You can isolate one, draw them away, lure them away. It's a powerful tool and weapon of the enemy. Do not be drawn away. Point two, I can promise you we won't get to point three by now. So the alternative, the solution, walk in Christ. Don't be drawn away. Walk in Christ, stand firm on that ground. Look at how he describes it in verse six. Therefore, not being drawn away, I'm rejoicing to see your orderliness and your firm fronted faith in Christ. Therefore, because of all this, and then he hearkens back to their experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. As you received Christ, man, I love the way he even describes him. Christ Jesus, the Lord. Oh, I think there's a lot there. So he says, listen, Colossian church, or listen, Grace Community Church. Listen, believer, brother, sister, young person in Christ. Think back. How did I receive Christ? I mean, that's where he's building his argument. How you received him actually then has implications on how you then continue in him. And Paul's question, while it kind of lay behind the the curtain of it, were you drawn by an insufficient savior? Were you lured into the church with smooth words and deluding arguments? The answer is no. That's not what... That's not what brought me into the faith. The thing that brought me into the faith was a crucified Savior who could forgive me and that everything I needed was in him. Paul says, that's what brought you in. Don't ever leave that. Don't ever leave that. In fact, while it isn't the Colossian church, he actually talks to the Corinthian church about the way that they received Christ. Listen to it from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, and I... When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and with wisdom. You might even say smooth words and deluding arguments. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling My speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, Christian, listen, when the, when those arguments come into your heart, either from the world, the flesh, the devil, or you think back, is this how I learned Christ? No, it's not. I wasn't one with spectacularly smooth and complex arguments. I was one. My soul was arrested with the Savior that was all I needed. That's, what, that's, that's why I'm a Christian. That's why you're a Christian. At some point, you became arrested with the, with the knowledge 
that Christ and in him you have all that you need. Don't ever be pushed off that. Don't ever think that that start has something lacking in it. There's times where we do this all the time. I'm telling all the Brian secrets today. There's times where when we're teaching first year Greek, this will be too fresh actually for the first years. I'm sorry. But we show them like, look how easy and simple and orderly it is. And they're like, wow, this is it. We're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And we don't tell them about a third declension. We don't. We don't tell them that all the rules they learn in the first couple months will break most of the time down the road. We, we, we just like, isn't Greek lovely? And they're like, it is. They're like, just keep coming. Just keep, with diluting speech and smooth arguments, we lure them. And then we say, actually, you need to take what we taught you, which was true, and it actually needs to progress and move and, and diversify from there on. What you learned in the beginning, yeah, some of it carries on, but it's, eh, you need to learn some other stuff too. That is not true of the Christian life. The Christ you learn at the beginning is the Christ you believe in with your last breath. And every breath that comes in between those two, from that first inhalation of faith, I believe, to the last, I believe, every breath in between those are still anchored on the same thing. Christ, my hope in life, and in death, and everything in between. So, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so you could just take apart all of those pieces, and if you were to add, the, add up what he's saying a little bit, Christ being the anointed one, the Messiah, Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, the, the second greater Adam who stood in your place, the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The summons that is given to walk in this one, just as you've received him, does not come as a polite recommendation. There's times where I will give to you polite recommendations. You'll ask me, where do you like to go for lunch? You can tell it's almost lunchtime and I'm using food metaphors again, so I must be hungry. I'll say min and meat and deli. You don't even need to go anywhere else. That's just, that's... That, hallelujah, I know. So, if you get the Reuben, oh, man. But if you said, you know what, I don't like Reubens. I'm like, that's your choice. You're lost, more Reuben for me. So, that would be a recommendation. Take it or leave it. This is not a recommendation. He actually puts it in the form of a command. It's an imperative. Walk in him. The Lord, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the only Savior of the world, in him carry out every element and area of your life. As you received him, so walk in him. That idea of walking kind of captures with it the most mundane pieces of your life. The smallest to the greatest is captured by that picture of walking. So it doesn't, he's not saying, hey, in the big things, those big decisions, in Christ, the other stuff, you know what, I'm not sure it's really needed. Like, no, every part of your life, he says, should be lived out in dependence on the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, he said, it is not an overstatement to consider This is the key verse for understanding the whole letter to the Colossians. As you received, so walk in Christ. You could fit, I think, every part of the book of Colossians somewhere under those three headings. How you came to Christ, how you should now live your life after coming to Christ, and he is the sum and substance of all that we are and believe. You don't need to add to him or subtract from him. No mathematics when it comes to Christ. Now that is a cause to say amen. Amen. Mainly because I'm bad at math. So, That is not something we walk away from. Now, what you might say, well, what does it look like to walk in him? Is it a certain kind of cadence that you would conduct your life in? Well, sort of. He actually gives four 
I think I can count, four descriptors of what walking in Christ would look like. And we have to hurry through verse 7. So, what does walking in Christ look like? Well, first, it is to be rooted in him. Now, these are, these are all participles that describe what does walking in Christ mean or entail. Well, the first is that you're rooted in Christ. The idea, it's kind of like a farming, or if you wanted the, the fancy word for it, the, it's a horticultural uh, word picture or analogy. Just like a tree has roots, so the Christian has roots in the Savior. It has both the idea of a foundation, something upon which you are built, but it adds to that the sense of life and nourishment. If you cut a tree, I'm a logger's son, so I have some familiarity with this. If you cut a tree off the roots, it doesn't do well. It dies pretty quickly. Just like a Christian, you take them away from Christ, you no longer have a Christian. And their life and the, the, the nourishment that they have for living their life actually comes from the roots. You might say, but I don't see where the strength and nourishment's coming. It's under the ground. Similarly to the Christian, there's times where I see enduring faith. I see it every Sunday here. Every Sunday when I see the saints singing, and I know just a fraction of what some of you guys are going through. I might say, I don't see how and where the strength comes from. It comes from the roots that are clinging to Christ and drawing from him much needed strength. And the world would look and say, how do they continue on? Even other Christians would say, how do they? Oh, wait, I know. They've got roots in Christ. That's how we can continue forward in the Christian life. So being rooted in Christ, he's both our foundation and our lifeblood, for lack of a better term. Uh, The second aspect would be built up in Christ. This would be like an architectural picture. So in the first is that of a flourishing tree, kind of Psalm 1-esque, the tree that uh, flourishes and bears fruits in season. But the second picture is that of being built up. And here, I think Paul grabbing from uh, the rich temple theology and temple motif of the church being built up in Christ as the temple for God himself, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as that end time dwelling place of God, God dwelling with man and being among them. You as a church, as a Christian, aren't just simply rooted in Christ. So that would, be, that would be more than ever what we deserved. But he's actually building each and every one of you up as well as us as a church. None of us. Now I think that this is encouraging. Some of you might be offended, but that's fine. None of us have arrived yet. If that's news to you, I'm not sorry, but you needed to hear it somewhere. I've not arrived yet, not even close. You've not arrived yet. We're all growing together into the mature man in Christ. So is he, is he, is he working individually? Absolutely. Is he growing you in different areas and he's growing someone else? Yes, but there's a shared thing among you too. He's growing both of you. And he's growing us at a church. And he uses things in the life of individuals and the life of the church to grow the church. And we are growing together. Oh, that we would never, either individually or as a church, become content with where we're at and growing in Christ. We would call that stagnant, not content. I don't ever want to take my foot off the gas. I don't ever want to think I've got it so figured out I can just click it on cruise control and wind up in heaven when I get there. We should never think as a church we have it all figured out. But always seeking to grow more into the likeness and the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, or thirdly, 
established and confirmed. Now, this is actually, he's switched. In all three of these, he's, he's moved uh, analogies, the first being that of a tree or uh, horticulture, the second being that of architecture of a building, the third being that of like a, a legal case. You might think, this is, I don't like legal stuff or lawyers. What is he talking about? I'm sorry if you're a lawyer. But that of confirmation. It's like he's saying, life and stuff that happens in life will try you. And yes, I do intend the pun. The trials that you go through have a way of strengthening and vindicating your faith. So that the faith that comes through the trial, tested and proven, emerges stronger not weaker as a result. And so Paul is not, I mean, he's writing it from prison. He's not like ignorant of the difficult things that we're going to go through. He knows that the testing of faith has a strengthening, establishing effect on that faith. And the, the faith that emerges from the fiery trials emerges more pure than ever. Stronger than ever before. Now you might say in the middle of a trial, I feel anything but strong. You must trust that God is using this in your life to establish and confirm and strengthen your faith. Now the result of all four or three of those is the fourth one, abounding in thanksgiving. All of those, and I know this is like a grammar nerd or geek thing, all of them were like middle passives, things that God is doing in us. He's actively at work grounding us in him. He is at work building us up by his spirit. He is at work establishing and confirming and holding our faith. He's the one moving and working among us. And therefore, what is the response of the Christian holding the line of faith in Christ? Thankfulness. There's only one reason our faith endures. That Christ is there to use Bunyan's imagery behind the wall, pouring the oil on the fire. And it will not go out. Paul says, that's what Christ is doing in your life. Can you see him? No. He's behind the wall, pouring the oil on your faith, grounding it, building it, confirming it. And he has his eye set on the last day where you will stand before him spotless, without wrinkle or blemish. He began the work. Brothers and sisters, he will finish it. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, work mightily in our presence, we pray. Work for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Work so that we will be built up firmly rooted and established in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, assist us as individuals, assist us as a church, cause us to fend off any attack on the truth that Christ is enough. We need your help, so help us, we pray. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.